anybody there? Hey, how are you? Hey, Bill. Good morning. How are you? I am doing well. How are you? Oh, oh, pretty good. Like, like I was saying uh, in the pregame here, uh, my sincere apologies for everything. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm, I'm just really thrilled. <laughs> oh, go ahead. No apologies necessary. Believe me, I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really excited to get to chat because you, you've written a, a phenomenal book called West of Apocalypse. There's so much going on in it. And of course, we're going to dive into that one in just a moment. But I'd like to learn a little bit more about you and how you got into this, uh, this arts game in the literary, uh, in the literary pursuits. So can you tell me a bit about what you remember when you were younger, when, when you started to get the inclination, if, if you will? For me, it was comic books. They were my gateway drug. And it, it wasn't within until about the past decade that I really kind of started to pay respect to the fact that that was what really got my writing itch going. Uh, it, comic books were the thing, and it wasn't until late in high school when I read Frankenstein, and then I read um, Dragonflight by Anne McCaffrey. Those two books, those were really what kind of started me on the path toward wanting to be a novelist. Mm. That's what got me going. But yeah, comic books, I was huge into X-Men. I started mm. collecting and uh, I would like fill up these spiral notebooks, plotting out like comic book series of my own with my own characters, subplots and stuff. <laughs> it's like, I remember, I can't remember how many years ago it was. I went back and I found it and I was kind of horrified because I looked at it. I was like, I have no idea what this was supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> so do you remember a moment when you, when you were reading those comic books and there was a, one of those, uh, I don't want to say cinematic goosebump moments, but what what was a story that that really took your breath away, or a moment that you felt like you had a eureka moment, if there was such a thing? I don't know if there was, but I just honestly, the first comic book I ever bought on my own was X, Uncanny X Men issue number two ten, and. It was a very odd place to jump into that series. It was during the first run by Chris Claremont as the author, and it was right after they had finished this storyline where they had written out this character who was uh, Rachel Summers, the second Phoenix character. And everyone's talking about her, but she's not in the issue. And it was also like this, and so it was really more of an epilogue to that storyline, but it was also a prologue to this huge event called the Morlock Massacre mm. uh, that ended up being a crossover event and one of the earliest ones of its kind within the Marvel Universe uh, in the comic books. And it was just, it was not a lot happens in it. Mm. For some reason, it was just fascinating for me and <laughs> I was hooked, totally hooked. I was a, a huge X-Men fan from that mm. point forward. Yeah, And so for me, it was just, I would start kind of coming up with my own characters. At first, you know, I did like most any person does. And it's like, you know, I was imagining my own character in the middle of the whole X-Men thing. But then I started creating my own teams, my own comic books, my own storylines. And uh, I, I tried to draw out the characters and it was just dreadful. 
<laughs> so were you in the in the east coast at the time did you grow up in in the area where you currently live or did you come from somewhere else there i have always lived on the east coast however i grew up in south carolina uh my wife and i in fact both lived in south carolina growing up we met in high school and i can credit my terrible artwork with having helped <laughs> my marriage uh sherry saw me drawing this one character uh in one of our classes and she was shocked to see someone who lived in their head like she did mm. and it was kind of the entire class conspired to get us together <laughs> it worked oh it that's worked. that's incredible so your your early sweethearts then yeah that was a, we started dating in 19 90 and we married six years later to the day and we have been together ever since mm. and it's like we're we've been together so long we've actually reached that point in the relationship where we're now empty nesters and it's like being we even talked about this last night it's like being newlyweds all over that's so, so strange we we love our kids and we even still get to hang out with them a bit we're kind of shocked they still want to <laughs> But we, uh, yeah, I mean, man, it's like so amazing. We now live in Virginia. We moved up here because I was working in TV news and I got a job opportunity in Richmond in 98. And we absolutely just kind of fell in love with the area. Mm. But I will admit, though, as much as we love Richmond, for me, Richmond is very much this. It's got this mix of the capital city feel that we were used to growing up. We grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, which was the capital there. Mm. So I city Phil it's got the southern charm of Charleston kind of in there which is actually where I always thought I would end up living girl when I grew up but yeah. I didn't and but there's also this northern sensibility that's thrown into the mix Richmond is just kind of this weird hybrid of the entire East Coast mm. you will people here who come from all ends of it north and south and it's very much a product of that and there's such a huge rich mismatch of cultures here. Which is part of why I think the uh, art scene is so good here. Uh, that, Richmond's uh, James River Riders organization, that's what really made it home for us. For us. Oh, I see. And I'm, I'm grateful to JRW because it did make Richmond our home. Yeah. And you were a board member for James River Riders, is that right? They did eventually get me on the board. Gary <laughs> uh, and I, we went to the first conference uh, Sherry sold off a, uh, I double checked this with detail with her just uh, a moment ago, but she sold on eBay a collection of leather bound books of the history of England to pay for that first trip to the conference. Oh, wow. Uh, and that was how we got to go. We, uh, there was an author she had met while working at Barnes and Noble and they kind of tipped us off to it. Hmm. We ended up getting involved behind the scenes very quickly, partly because we needed a way to pay our way because we just didn't really have a lot of money to spare for it. And so we involved in the organization. But it's, oh my God, yeah, eventually I ended up on the board in total, God, is it six years I did or eight? God, I can't even remember now. It's just, I put it. The bio so says many. eight. <laughs> yeah, it was eight. Yeah, I just, oh my God. <laughs> 
so many years. They were not consecutive. Thank God I'd have been in the ground. <laughs> um, so what did it, that entail? Like what, what did that kind of work entail? It, a lot of the work, it evolved over the years because most of it was, it's a very, over the years, the board was initially very much a volunteer board in the sense that it was a working board. You were expected to earn your keep on that board by doing work to keep the organization running. And for me, a lot of that work revolved around the conference. And the conference is all JRW does. Um, it also does like a monthly writing show, which these days is actually one month they'll do in person, one month they'll do online. I, in fact, there was one year I ran the writing show and that really was helpful for me as a moderator because you, the way most people had run it prior to me was that they would um, get someone who would uh, plan one of the months and they would either be the moderator or they would get someone to moderate the panel. Mm -hmm. And I got to where I hated hurting someone to do that. So I was like, I will moderate them all. <laughs> uh, I part of the writing shows that year, planning most of them, which in some ways was the stupidest thing ever because it was so much work. But it really was a good experience, and it was in so many ways because it broadened me as a, a reader mm -hmm. even more than I'd already become. But yeah, JRW, a lot of my work was in terms of helping planning the conference. I did a lot of the travel planning, and oh, dear God. <laughs> Those people, the people who plan the travel and those things, they deserve all the credit in the world. I say that because I struggled with it, and I don't know how there are some people who do it on the regular. Oh, yeah, I'll yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny you mentioned that my wife actually did that for work. She worked with travel companies, and she, she arranged a lot of that stuff, especially during COVID. She no longer does that, thankfully, but um, that was the, it was the biggest nightmare in the world. I mean... At any point, even before COVID, to travel or to arrange somebody's travel just sounds like pure madness. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, props to you because that, that is insane. <laughs> the biggest thing I didn't, I, man, I made so many mistakes along the way. And the biggest one I ran into, and I don't know how I managed it because it was a few years after, it was only like about five years after 9 11. I had made reservations on a flight for an author. And I did it not realizing that I was using her pen name oh. and not her, <laughs> not her real I name. The name. And so it was like, I was like on the phone with the airline begging for them to let me make the adjustment, which believe me, post 9-11 world was not easy. I can't imagine because we're, we're, I imagine we're still getting used to the idea that like, we're locking down the airports. We're not going to be able to be flexible anymore. And to have that happen, I mean, I mean, that has to be super disorienting. <laughs> oh, my God. I think the only reason I got away with it is that the pin name and the real name, and I can't even remember what they were now. I feel awful saying that, but it, it's been a while. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. I, mean, I can't even, if, if they were very similar, and that was the only reason I think I got away with it. Oh, my goodness. So that, that seems to have been, uh, an interesting part of your life and, and maybe, uh, a key point in, in the way that you developed a, as a writer, then, you know, your ability to, uh, to 
read a little bit better, read into things? I mean, did you feel like you had some, like, here's my, my bullet list of things that I learned during my time there? Or or was it more like internalized as you started writing that you realized that, that things made more sense to you? Honestly, God, it's such a, it, it was helpful because in the way that it did broaden me as a reader. Uh, for example, one of the Biggest, I don't, I'm, uh, as a guy, you know, I know the stereotype for guys is to read a lot of nonfiction, and I've never been that guy. But JRW, one of the books I got from the first conference was a book called Blue Latitudes. And the concept for this book is it, this author who was a travel writer, he went to all the places that Captain Cook was one of the first Europeans to go to. And he wanted to see what presence did Cook still have there. In some places, it's not so great. And in some places, it is. Uh, and it, on the surface, it sounds like a very dry book. It's hysterical. <laughs> I mean, it, the way he writes it, it's funny as hell. There's like one place he and this, this Australian, uh, a rather irreverent Australian pal of his, they go to this one island <laughs> that's this tricky big place. And they show up there, and at first everyone's like, oh, hey, how you doing? And it's like, by the time they left, they had accidentally managed to steal a car. Yes, accidentally managed. <laughs> and everyone was just basically like, you need to go. <laughs> Which is really funny. It actually kind of mirrored to a degree what happened to Cook when he went there. Oh, my goodness. But I recognized how well he, how much his voice in, incorporated that humor. And uh, while I will say West of Apocalypse is not the best example, that's a very dark, <laughs> but it's like the first book I ever got published the, about my teenage vampire hunter, Gideon Keep, a lot of humor went into that writing, uh, even though it dealt with a lot of dark material. And it just, that was the thing. Reading that book kind of realized, made me realize I needed to step up my game a little bit and really work more towards finding my voice. Mm. And that was... That was something that got out of the first conference. And I would say after every conference, almost every event I've ever been to for JRW ever since then, there's always something I take away from it. And it just keeps me evolving as a writer and a reader. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the the first novel that you wrote, and then we'll get to West of Apocalypse, because I'm super excited to learn a little bit more about it. So which one's your, your first book? Is it your adult vampire hunter series, Gideon's Hunt? Yeah, my YA series, uh, Gideon's Hunt, uh, was the first book in the series. It wasn't the first book I ever wrote, and dear God, a lot of the early stuff should never find its way onto a shelf. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Gideon's Hunt, that was born, a book born out of frustration mm -hmm. in some way. I was working, I, I've been working as a 911 dispatcher since November of 2001, and I was trying to write an adult urban fantasy where the main character would be a 911 dispatcher trying to make use of my experience as a dispatcher, you know, because that it'd be a really good pitch. And, oh dear God, that book, it was the most toxic relationship I've ever had with the story. <laughs> it, it really was tapping into all the worst things that were happening in my life at that point. And I just, I reached a point where I was so frustrated, even though I was like about 20,000 words, I think, into that book. I took a wooden sword out into the yard and I kept, I hit a tree with that thing until the wooden sword was splinters. I was that frustrated. I know that sounds awful, but I mean, that's what it, that's what it was. And I, later that night, I just kind of 
unloaded with Sherry mm-hmm. uh, while we were sitting in bed together, and I just kind of told her how frustrated I was. And she just asked me this one question. She was like, if you were going to write one book, what would it be? Mm. And I knew the answer. I'd always known the answer. And the answer was I wanted to write the best damn vampire hunter novel anyone had ever seen. And it wasn't something I initially intended for it to be YA. But when I started getting an idea of what that book would look like it actually made more sense for me to do it that way and so it's like i ended up crafting because i had to come up with the idea of what kind of person is going to hunt a vampire <laughs> why would he do it what would he need to be able to get away with it uh and it ended up being this third generation vampire hunter and gideon is just this very clever boy and i uh, humorously enough i actually got mileage out of being a 911 dispatcher when i wrote the book huh. how so well, two ways. One, I was like, okay, I need a way for Gideon to be able to get out of the house at night without his dad knowing about it. And so I was like, well, I can just make his dad a 911 dispatcher after work the midnight shift. <laughs> there's a Because, I mean, it, for the dad, it's like this frees him up during the day and the evening if he needs to do something for his son, school-related and whatnot. Even though it just makes sleeping a nightmare, believe me, when you work midnight shifts, oh. Mm. But, but at the same time, it was like that solved that problem. But it's also why I made the uh, main character, a, well, why I made him the son of a single parent situation it was because I was like, I can get away with that with one parent, but if I got to come up with an excuse for the second parent, it's really going to be pushing it. Mm-hmm. Mm. So. That's why that played out that way. But it was also the second benefit was I took a very gumshoe approach to the way Gideon hunts vampires. It's less about the gore. It's less about the fights, although there's definitely some good confrontations in there. But it was a matter of I really took advantage of my knowledge of how knowledge is gathered in law enforcement to kind of inform the way Gideon would do things and how he would gather and apply it mm-hmm. and so that's very useful to me uh, so yeah it was like I got double duty out of that I never would have thought that would have been useful writing a vampire in a book but there you go oh that's incredible and it leads me to wonder how you were able to do the kind of work that you that you do for such a long time or did are you still a dispatcher oh yeah oh, yeah I, I it's been very interesting to Ride. I've now been working as a 911 dispatcher for 22 years come November. Oh, my goodness. The point where I, it's like when I got there initially, I was still in my late 20s. And it's like I joke, I had work wives back in those days. And then about seven years into working there, my wife decided to give it a shot. And she worked there for a while as a 911 dispatcher, which horribly complicated the whole work wife situation. Oh, yeah, yeah. The hierarchy is completely uh, all over the place now. <laughs> well, now there is the whole deal that I started getting to that age where I don't get work wives anymore. I have work children. <laughs> yeah. And got these work kids there. And now my son, our son Liam, has started working there with mm-hmm. me. He's been there since 2020 now, in fact. And so now that's complicated. Oh, wow. So it's a, it's a family's willing to give it a shot then and following your footsteps in, in some regard, but it seems like it requires so much humanity, so much empathy, patience. I mean, I really, 
I'm not just like blowing smoke right now, but it, it is it is a remarkably difficult job, and and I'm very grateful that that you're doing that kind of work because it takes a special kind of person. I mean, it really it really does. I mean, it, this is going to sound arrogant, but it does, um, and I say that in the sense that with most of the training academies we do, usually the survival rate of people uh, to get through the entire training it's usually one out of three, mm-hmm. and some people who it's just a weird job and I feel bad for both my son and my daughter because when Sherry and I were both working there, it ruins you for conversation. You have no patience because the whole thing you're trained to do is to get the details as fast as possible and get it summed up as quickly as you can so you can get units on the way to help mm-hmm. out. And can you imagine anything worse at storytelling than a seven-year-old child? Oh, dear God. Sitting at the kitchen table for dinner was like hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it just speaks to having to switch off and on or, or at least finding that kind of balance. And, you know, could you could you elaborate? And this is mostly me being a parent and, and mostly curious, like, how did you work this out? How, how does one manage, you know, having a family and being in this line of work and maybe writing a little bit once every couple of years? Or how does this, <laughs> how does this work out for you? Gideon, the grandparents get a lot of the credit for me being able to find the time, carve out the time to write the first book. Um, the reason I say that is because back when I started Gideon's Hunt, God, what year was, I can't even remember what year it was now. I know the kids were still really young. So I wrote Gideon over the course of a month, two summers in a row. And during those summers, that those months, the kids would go visit my parents in South Carolina. It wasn't the reason they went down there. They, not, they were just visiting their grandparents. And so while they were down there, I took a ton of time off from work. And I would hit the cafes, and I would write. I mean, there were some days I would hit the ground running, and I would keep writing until the end of the day, meaning it's like I would start off in a cafe, and I'd stay there for like about five hours. Then I would go move on to somewhere else. Uh, I had it figured out all the different places I could go and hang out and write where I could also get food if I needed to. So you had a and route uh, when you I were did. doing that. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I was like, there was like this one place in Midlothian called uh, Capital L House where I could go to where it's like I knew they would be open and serving food as late as one o'clock. Wow. And it punch up thousands of words in a day. It was fantastic. And I just got so much done for that. Now, when the kids were home, Sherry's mom lived with us for a very long time. And so it would be easy for me sometimes to be able to get out of the house and go right if I needed to, even when the kids were there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So when I say the grandparents definitely get some credit for me able to get a lot written in the early days. Oh, yeah. That was a- after the first book, though, when, when it got published, that was in 2013. The kids. Oh, man. I tell you what, the book release event I had at Fountain Bookstore, the kids got to be there for it. And it's, I still get choked up at times when I think about it because it was like the kids knew I went and wrote. They knew this was something I did that was important to me. They didn't get it. They didn't really see what, know what, it, what the whole point of it was. And that was the first time I think they got to kind of see and understand what 
I had been working toward all that time, uh-huh. why I was spending all that time away from the house and as such away from them and Sherry. And it just, I didn't know, I didn't know that mattered mm-hmm. for until that moment yeah. for them to be able to see that. And it just was a relief yeah. that I just, I can't, uh, <laughs> it's like this huge ball of stress that kind of unwound that I didn't know I'd been holding. And they, and the kids really kind of had my back when it came to working on the next book because they knew at that point what, they had a tangible idea mm-hmm. of what I was working towards. And that was really kind of cool. Um, it was actually the second book. The dedication is to Sherry and the kid, both, all th- three of them. Uh, <laughs> which is really funny because I even say, I know it's a really dark book in <laughs> the Gideon series. <laughs> but so it's kind of an odd one to dedicate to the family. But at the same time, they were part, they had my back in the whole writing process. Oh, that's incredible. And so moving. I, I got a little, I got a little emotional back here. So thank you so much for sharing that because I think as a, as a parent, we put on the strong face, we put on the brave face every single day. And it's really a beautiful thing to be able to share that effort in, in a tangible form. I mean, you, you have a book, you have an event, you have things happening. And, uh, to know that that's on the horizon in some shape, or form to be able to, to pass that on to your kids is, is just, what a blessing, what a gift. And I love, I love the kind of juxtaposition though, because I think there is such kindness in, in that I can tell from you, our conversation together, but yet the subject matter is, is incredibly dark and incredibly intense, which is very much what I gravitate to. It's, it's like, uh, people say that I'm, I'm, I don't know. I, I don't know what people say about me, but I'm very, very much drawn to those, uh, those dark sort of explorations of of the human psyche and it it appears that uh, west of apocalypse is very much in that vein and takes it to the next level and could we talk about the embers of that novel and where you begin there and how do you find the fortitude to dig deep into something that is brutal and and intense but so i mean reading the first the first section of the book was like just pure heaven in terms of the, the scope, you know, there, there's so much happening. And I know that we kind of chatted over email about Stephen King and just the dark tower being a kind of influence or maybe a starting point for, for the kind of lore that you wanted to create. But how do you begin something so massive and so dark and so humane at the same time? Because I think that's the vibe that I'm getting from this book. There was, I mean, honestly, there were like, three origins that all went into that book um, in terms of coming up with the idea to write it. One of them was um, the first book Sherry ever lent me when we started dating back in high school was Stephen King's The Gunslinger. And I was a very nice. It's kind of funny. Sherry went every way to shock me a lot when we started dating in those days because I she's like she was convinced I grew up in the uh, Leave it the Beaver house. <laughs> <laughs> I was so straight-laced it was embarrassing. And so, yeah, she let me borrow that book, and it blew my mind. I had never read anything like that. It was like, it was, yeah, it was fantasy, but it was like, man, talk about dark. I revisited that book uh, quite a few years ago, and I was just like, man, I did, I did not appreciate how 
crazy that book is. <laughs> and I was between projects and I was trying to figure out, you know, what I wanted to write next. I, I had started a third Gideon book and I had found out from the publisher they were not interested in it. And so I kind of was, that was it, kind of, I had to kibosh on that. And I had written another book that I was trying to pitch around. And I'll revisit that one in a minute. But uh, I was like, you know what? I said, I, I could do something kind of neat like what uh, Hugh Howey did with Wool. Hugh Howey wrote Wool, and it was like a five-act story that he released the separate pieces of it individually. And that was originally what I was going to do. I was like, I'm going to do it like that. Because that's actually how King did The Gunslinger originally. It was released mm -hmm. in a magazine. Oh, wow. The, yeah, and that's how it originally came out, in the separate bits. And so I was like, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to release each one as a separate story. And I was like, I can knock those out in no time. I'll just do, I'll do like six novelettes, and boom, that'll be a piece of cake. All right, this is where me being an idiot comes up. <laughs> do the math. Average number count for word count for a novelette is probably about fifteen thousand words. What do you get when you multiply that by six? <laughs> you get ninety thousand words. I was writing a freaking book. <laughs> But oh. the things you say to rationalize the journey is is just phenomenal. <laughs> oh my, so much sense in my head. And then, as I, I, but I realized real fast. Now I will say one of the other things that kind of uh, fed into the darkness of the book is that the story I had written before that, and sadly has not found print yet. Uh, I did a young adult story about a teenage girl with schizophrenia who gets hired by a mythical creatures police force here in Richmond. And she's the only human on staff. <laughs> it was one of the lightest intent. I leaned into the humor on that book. It was one of the lightest things I had ever written. And it was so, it, that's not my default setting. Even though I can, will sometimes incorporate a lot of humor into my writing. That was like me really pushing hard on the humor. And by the time I was done, I was exhausted. Mm -hmm. I was just like the pendulum swung the whole other way, and that was why mm. Westwood was so dark. Uh, I mean, yeah. So it's like when I was drawing on the so when I took that inspiration for the gunslinger, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to do that kind of west wild west vibe, but I'm going to get rid of all the guns. I'm going to do swords. I love sword mm. sword fights. Love riding sword fights. Uh, and I was like, but and I'll make the main character a young woman. So I went rolling with that, and the third thing that kind of fed into that book was the timing of when I did it. And that was in the, I started writing it in September of 2017 during the first year of the Trump presidency, and there was so much crap uh, being done to women at that point because of the political situation, and it just, I was furious about it. Hmm. And that fed into a lot of the story. And in fact, that is why the majority of the characters in the book are women. Mm -hmm. uh, that, and so that fed into it a lot. It, there were little things I plugged in there that I purposely did in the word choice of some of the characters, little things here and there to try and make it as much with women in the story and running the story as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, although that's why ultimately the big bad of the book uh, when you eventually meet them is an old white guy <laughs> <laughs> so well, like, can't do that story did not be that yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> so can you give us a little bit of the narrative can you set the stage of the story 
just so that we can give folks an idea of what this world is like. Aileen Tor is this young woman who was, I guess you could say she was as close to royalty as you could get within this group called the Knights of the Way. And they were this galactic, I don't know that you would call them a police force, but they were like this just organization that they would do exploration. In many ways, it was very much like this weird marriage of Star Wars and Star Trek, but she was as close to royalty as you get into it because her mom was like one of the youngest people to ever become a mage general in the knighthood, and her mm -hmm. father was the renowned explorer within the knights. And so everyone knew Aileen was going to be destined for greatness, but less than two years after she became a knight, and one of the youngest people to ever achieve knighthood within the organization, it was all gone. Thirteen traitors wiped it all out. Mm -hmm. And the 13 have basically made the galaxy their own, and she is now on a quest for revenge. And it's as simple as that. She wants their blood. The problem is her enemies are immortal, and she's got to find a way to kill them despite that. And so she, th this story leads her to the darkest parts of the cosmos trying to find those answers. And it's also a matter of finding out why it has to be her to do this. Because there is a reason it's Aileen and could be no one else. Hmm. But that is her journey. It is a matter of revenge, but it, there is so much more at stake. Because as I like that, one of my favorite lines of the thing is that as much as she thinks she's willing to do anything to get her revenge, she's going to find, and as much as she thinks she's already lost everything, there's still plenty for her left to lose. Mm. It is, it, I just want to say the beginning packs such a punch. <laughs> it's like you get thrown into this world and there's so much happening in, in terms of, I don't want to say overwhelm, but it's like, like I said, a kind of magical thing that you get that can only happen in genre, right? Where be, it seems like like such a fusion that you're getting different flavors of different genres. And, and I really, really appreciate that. So can you tell me about the sensibility a little bit more and how you went about doing the full work of building this manuscript? Because I'm, I'm curious how much you had to go back and punch up. You know, they say that a lot in screenwriting and stuff. But what was that process writing this thing for you? Now, I will confess, I'm a little bit of an aberration as a writer because I would never encourage anyone to do my writing process. <laughs> um, the reason I say that is I'm one of those authors, I try very hard to do a polished rough draft. I, I, and it's, it's so difficult for someone to do that because most of the time when you try to do a polished rough draft, you never finish it because you just get hung up in trying to get it right. Um, so it's not something I usually advise, but for me, it works. It's why I suck at NaNoWriMo, because I can't turn off the internet. I, I, I tried and I tried NaNoWriMo. Oh, dear God, not for me. It's, <laughs> I love that it exists, but dear God, I'll never do it. Um, the funny thing is, though, West of Apocalypse, it is amazing how much this book just fell into place. I wrote a... I think it was roughly a page and a half, two-page outline within a few days before I started writing it. And what I did was I figured out, because I did say if I was going to do this as a six-part storyline, I, I mean, I wanted each act to stand on its own. I needed a rough idea of what's going to happen in each act of 
the story. And I will be honest, by the time I got to the end of the second act, almost everything was thrown out the window um, mm-hmm. because so much weird crap that came out of nowhere for me in the second act of that story that I realized everything I had originally planned after that was going to be your standard fantasy fair. And I was just like, yeah, I can't get away with that now because mm. people are bored. Uh, and so I just, I had to, most of that book was improvised. And what's really bizarre, I didn't really have a solid idea. You know, I mentioned the idea of Aileen has to figure out why it has to be her to stop the 13, why mm-hmm. she's the one who has to be able to do this. I didn't fully know the answer to that question when I started the book. Mm. I had theories and I had rough ideas, but it wasn't until I got halfway through the fourth act of the book, I was writing one scene and when I wrote it, there was this, they talk about an aha moment. I was writing that and all of a sudden I went, shit. <laughs> <laughs> It was, I had the answer. I knew exactly. And I was like, I, it wasn't the answer I wanted, but it was the right answer. And I was just like, what really was bizarre though, is as I went writing along, I realized without even meaning to, I had already built into the book, the perfect timeline to explain everything. Mm -hmm. Little details here and there throughout the story, just all were already there. And I think a lot of writers do this a lot more than they realize. I think it's one of those things that it's just natural for your brain to go when you get stuck at a spot. You kind of go, all right, what have I established? Mm-hmm. And then you kind of find the answer in everything you've already done. But for me, it was just, it was like it all fell into place. That's actually one of the reasons this book is so special to me. As a writer, I don't think it's a great novel that's going to, you know, be this thing that lives on in fame or anything. It's, it's this just dark adventure that I enjoyed writing. But for me, it was one of those things that it was like creative heroin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, my, my wife, I talk about my wife and I both have worked in 911. And so we do, this sounds like a real terrible thing to compare it to probably, but heroin overdoses. Mm-hmm. Sadly, it become a very common thing in, in recent years, even more so than they had been before. But mm. one of the details about heroin addicts that my wife had mentioned to me was that for a lot of them, they are always chasing after that first high. Mm-hmm. Why they end up overdosing is because they're having to constantly keep upping the dosage. For me, writing West of Apocalypse from a creative imagination standpoint, it was that. Mm-hmm. And it's, I wrote that book in roughly seven months, the rough draft. Wow. And probably there's a part of me that will probably be chasing that same creative high for the rest of my life. It set the bar. It did. I mean, yeah, I was like, there's a book I recently finished the manuscript for recently. And the whole reason I wrote that book was because I was trying to do as much as I could to recapture some of what I had in West Apocalypse. <laughs> uh, and that one's going to be, that, that one I'm hoping to find a home for it soon. Uh, that one's about a married couple of modern day sword fighters who go to hell on a quest for revenge mm. and have to play out. Guided <laughs> through all these different realms of hell by their little silky terrier who is their. Uh, the dogs have an innate ability to gut, 
you know, to navigate hell's the theory, but it's just <laughs> I writing that book, and that is much as I say it. It, it it can't reach the same high as I had it with writing West of Apocalypse, but man, I tell you what, I it gave me an opportunity to get away with doing recapturing a lot of the elements, the bizarre settings, the insane monsters, uh, the sword fighting. Uh, I even interviewed a, a professional sword fighter for oh, that wow. book. Yeah, I, I was gonna say that he let me inter- interview him on Facebook Messenger. I sent him several questions, and I even took advantage of that because I had already started the book, and I was up to this one point in the manuscript where I was like, "This is gonna sound crazy considering it's set in hell." But I have the character <laughs> fight way through in a, a group of the fish demons <laughs> in aircraft carrier, <laughs> and I was like. The setting's going to be so cramped, and he's got this. He's basically got a broadsword. I'm like, that's not going to work in that space. And so I was picking his brains, like, how is he going to work this? And it, it, it actually was really helpful because, you know, kind of part of me wished I'd had that knowledge before I wrote West of Apocalypse, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I might would have written the fight scenes a little differently. But I still really love the stuff I wrote for Aileen. She's so fun to write. Yeah. And there's so much to unpack here. You kind of led me into two different directions. And I wanted to ask you about the research that goes into this stuff and how much is research versus just following that pure intuition and saying, what do I love? What do I want to see? Because I think you, it seems like you, you were able to just let go of any inhibition that you would have about what it means to be a writer. And you just said, I'm going to go for it. And, and that seems like a remarkably liberating thing. It might be touching on what you've just said about that, that high, that feeling of, of, just being completely free as you're confronting the page. But how do you arrive at that point? Because it's, it seems like there, there was a blend of research and there was also uh, a lot of pure intuition being followed. It drew on a lot of stuff I had already figured out over the years. One of the things that did kind of, oh gosh, yeah, with Aileen, for example, I've written, I mean, I've read a lot uh, young adult books over the years, and mo- uh, wh- most of the wh- young adult books I have read, and honestly, even when I think about it, even the adult stories I read, I I do tend to lean female in my reading. I mean, when you think about it, the books that awoke- awakened my love for novel reading mm-hmm. were by two women, Anne McCaffrey and Mary Shelley, mm-hmm. uh, the two people who really got me hooked. And, like, my favorite author, period, is N.K. Jemison. Damn. Damn, that woman is good. She, oh, Broken Earth series. Oh, my God. Sorry, and I'm kind of getting off track there. Oh, no, no, this is perfect. Tell me why. Why, it, why did you love like, that one? It's one of the reasons I felt comfortable trying to tackle the main character as a woman. I am sure it's not as good as it could be if in a woman's hands. In fact, I would love, if it were ever made into a film, I would love to see a woman direct it. Because mm. I expect it, she could unpack elements to Aileen that I've missed. It would be so fun to see someone else do, finding those layers I've not uncovered. Mm. I would love that. Um, it, but it's just that, in terms of research, in a way, all the reading I did kind of led up to it. But there was also little tidbits I've picked up along the way one of the most disturbing things for when you're trying to describe something horrific, avoid asymm- avoid symmetry. Mm-hmm. You want to go a 
as much as possible. Why is that? Uh, what? Because we, even from, it is one of the most pleasingly aesthetic things for the human eye to see something that is symmetrical. Mm. When you think about people who are generally regarded as attractive, more often than not, they have faces that are, you know, almost identical on the right and the left side. Mm -hmm. That's very much a common thing. And so if you want to really startle someone, you find ways to deform that symmetry. Uh, which is why, like, when I introduced the fire hoppers in the second act of the book, the eyeball, they have one eyeball, but it, like, can be on, like, the side of their head. It can uh. be on the front. It can be anywhere <laughs> that's like that. It's a little detail, but it's one of those things I learned. Oddly enough, when I was reading a book that was talking about injuries to people and how they could affect, you know, how it was written by a guy with medical knowledge. And so I was reading it to, in terms of years ago to try and get a better idea of how to write characters with different types of injuries. But that was one of the weirdest tidbits I took from that book. Mm. But there was also a little bit, there's, talk about some of the dark sections of the book. There's like two scenes where I had to really kind of go into some bizarre research. One of them was a scene where Aileen is doing kind of a magical crafting to summon a dead spirit. Mm. And I was like, I need her to have to channel some of the most horrible things imaginable. And so I had to think of, I wanted it to be profane imagery, basically. Mm. And, and that was tough to write. There was actually stuff I cut out because I was felt like, yeah, that's too yeah. much. Yeah. And this is the thing uh, in terms of the sensibility of the book. How do you find that balance? How do you find that line? Since we're already kind of in a, in a realm that is a bit further than what most people are going to be accustomed to, what allows you to say this is not helping? Or if there's an example, or I guess if you could maybe uh, say a little bit more on that, that example that you were mentioning. Well, as I say, yeah, it's just, there was like one thing Sherry caught for me and talk about having a woman's eye versus a man's eye. Mm. One of the things, there's a point in the book when Aileen talks about the crystal sword she carries because there's a piece of her soul in it. And I actually have a part in the book where when she's talking, she's talking to this one character and she tells them, uh, you know how they talk about the kind of pain you forget? Well, that's the kind you never do in terms of the, the, the whole carving of the soul to be placed into the sword. And the way I had written it originally very much made it clear I was speaking to the idea of women who have in childbirth, because a lot of times you'll hear a lot of women talk about the fact that, you know, it's the kind of pain you forget. And Sherry was just kind of like, yeah, no, hon, you can't be doing this. <laughs> I was so glad she said something about that. I was like, all right, but dial that down a lot. <laughs> But it's great to have uh, somebody that you can trust like that and, and especially have that be your partner or somebody who, who really knows where you're coming from. And, and I think that it's important now because none of this is an attack. It's just a, a, an opportunity to try to understand that other perspective and to have yeah. that kind of gauge, right, to help you along with that is, is uh, pretty remarkable, too. Uh, but I got I got a couple more questions to be mindful of your time. This has been awesome, Bill, and I'm having a, a blast over here. But yeah. I, I was hoping to see if if you could speak to me a little bit more about 
the process of getting the book out into the world and, and what made you feel comfortable going with this route? Going indie with Western Apocalypse. Yeah. There were a couple of reasons for it. Um, one of them was, and I, I just had some, it had been a painful journey trying to find a home for it, the traditional route. And it's one of those things where I can understand why it's a tough book to find a home for because it's very, I never know how to pronounce the word niche. It's got a, yeah, yeah. It's got this Wild West vibe. And while, in fact, one of the things I talked to another Weird West writer uh, to kind of pick her brain uh, about the genre, and she warned me, she was like, you can't promote it as a Western. People don't want Westerns. They won't buy Westerns. And so if you promote it as a Western, they are probably not going to go after it. Mm. She's like, you've got to lean on the fact that, that you want to lean on the other elements in the book and promote it that way. People love Westerns. They love the elements of Westerns. But for some reason, the idea of reading or watching a Western usually is a big turnoff. <laughs> and so you, it's, weird. it's weird. But I mean, I think it kind of goes to the genre itself. It's very malleable. Uh, Westerns are very mythic, mm -hmm. and so it lends itself in the same way that most mythology does to being manipulated. Uh, so it, I had a, I struggled. I couldn't find an agent after many years of searching. I tried small presses, and I had some close. I came so close with uh, two different presses. Oh my god! Mm -hmm. First one was in fact with the the edit, the lady who was the acquisitions yeah. editor there. She bought my first short story many years ago. Mm. Liked the, I did one of the Twitter pitches and she had liked it. And I was oh. like, oh my, Sandra Rattan, a uh, wonderful lady. And she got, she had me send her the manuscript. She loved it. She said it was one of the best fantasies she's ever read. And having her say that meant so much. And I was really excited by the idea of getting to work with her, mm -hmm. given our history. And then she had to quit the press she was with. Oh. It turned out they weren't paying their authors. <laughs> wow. And she was not cool with that for obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I was like, and so when I found that that was going, and this is embarrassing. This kind of gives you an idea of how desperate I was to get this book out there. Even knowing that, Mocha Bean, that's my, one of my dogs. <laughs> uh, but uh, it is, even knowing they weren't doing what they should be doing to pay their authors. I had to think about it. I actually had to think about it. Do I want to pull the manuscript from them and just not do it? Or do I want to just see what happens? I'm mm. like, that should be a no brainer. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, yeah, I came to my senses, but I mean, still there was that moment where I was like, Oh, I know how close I've gotten. And now I'm going to have to pull the plug. And then there was another, Afterwards, it was really promising. They, I got to where I sent them the full manuscript, and it, it was looking really good. And then that publisher just seemed to kind of vanish mm. as the part in the wind. Uh, it's like they ghosted everybody. Everyone who was in, yeah, I was like, and so in that sense, I dodged a bullet. But again, oh, so close, so close. Yeah, and it was like. I was like, the humorous thing is I made, I turned the corner in my brain and was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to put it out there. I have been sitting on this manuscript for, God, five years, five painfully long years. And I mean that. It really has been, it's hurt mm -hmm. not 
able to have something that's so precious to me from a creative standpoint. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I mean, it's a vital part of my writer journey, and it's not out there. Mm-hmm. And knowing that it finally will be, I, it, it's, it's worth it. It's worth it. And even though I'm having to go this route, it's totally worth it. Um, it's scary. The funny thing is when I, the day I made the decision, I sat, I was meeting two of my best friends who are also writers. We were meeting for drinks and tacos and, <laughs> and they, the funny thing was when I told them, uh, one of them, Phil, he looked at me, he was like, I'm so glad to hear that because we were about to stage an intervention, intervention with you until mm. you need <laughs> That's the good. Fun- yeah, that's, gonna, those are good friends, you know? Yeah. He did the cover. Oh, okay. Okay. He's an artist. Uh, and I mean, he, he's a, and he did an amazing cover for the book. And it was, he, it was fascinating to see him translate the book into a work of art mm-hmm. and captured it in ways that were even better than I'd ever imagined. And I was shocked. It, it just, I already had a lot of respect for Phil as an artist and that just, in, increased it tenfold because the elements of that cover little details in it just it lets the reader know what they're in for yeah it yeah to me that how he does it oh that's incredible and it seems like you've built a good community around yourself to kind of steer you in the right direction if you need to which uh you know as we all know is a huge part of, of doing anything worthwhile but i got one more question for you uh but bill again this has been such a blast can you share a couple of thoughts on what a young writer should do if they're having doubts about going their own way, following that intuition, chasing that pursuit with, with clarity and drive? I mean, what do we need to do? What have you learned in the last long while of writing that you think is is pivotal to a young person to really properly get the ball rolling and get their their novels out there two things um the first thing is the simple part dear god focus on short stories don't try to write novels first (laughs) i made that mistake that's why i say that and the reason i say it's a mistake is because you gain something as a writer when you get to the end of the story because you can then look back at the rest of the manuscript and you can go, what works to get me to this ending and what doesn't? And you just, and then when you go to write the next story, it does slowly over time get you to where you can catch the pitfalls before you commit them. And so writing a short story is a way of speeding up that learning curve. Hmm. Whereas if you do it with novels, it's going to take forever. Now, the second thing, and this is just as important, you have got to figure out what creates your ideal writing space. For me, I know some people, for some writers, they can take the approach of, you know, quit the day job, just dive in and just make it to where you have to write it or you won't survive. I That don't work for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the best things I can say for having been a 911 one for the past 22 years is the fact that it provided a sense of job security to know that my children would be fed and would have a roof over their heads. Crumbling, but it was a roof. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, it, you know, it provided the health insurance. It provided the things to take care of my family. 
so that I didn't have that stress as a distraction. I do not thrive when I am financially troubled mm-hmm. as a writer. But the problem, the downside of that is, yeah, I'm having to cope with the 40-hour work week on top of finding ways to make time to write. But again, I found, that's why I went to cafes for a long time. It got me out of the house. It helped me get a... It, going to the cafe forced me to write because I'm like, all right, at a minimum, I've spent gas money to get here mm-hmm. and maybe a coffee. I've got to produce something. Mm-hmm. It's funny that now my wife and I are empty nesters. I actually am able to finally, for the first time in many years, write effectively in my home. <laughs> that's got to be that's got to be such a gift. But it's incredibly inspiring to me to to hear that and see somebody who is, you know, going along in their own journey as a as a parent, as somebody who's working to provide for their family to to bring their family forward and and to still find time to to do that. I mean, I deeply admire what you're doing, you know, not just the work that you're doing professionally, but as an author and as a family man. I mean, it, it's just so remarkable to see so bill it's this has been a blast and i really hope that we get to chat and keep uncovering more stuff because like i i haven't even covered any of the other big things that i wanted to talk to you about but but this has uh, been such uh, a blast i could definitely talk unfortunately <laughs> well you know uh next time maybe we'll just talk about parenting because that's that's just such a huge part of my life that i i need all the help i can get so <laughs> it is simple <laughs> Yeah, but uh, Bill, thanks again so much for everything. And uh, where can they find the book? Uh, fastest way to find the links, go to billballoon.net. Uh, and you'll see there that also will include links to be able to buy a copy from Fountain Bookstore, where if you wanted to get an autograph, that's the way you can do that. Awesome. Awesome. Support a bookstore in the process. That's right. Support a bookstore, folks. That is uh, That needs to be our motto here at Arts Calling. I, I really feel like we got to make that happen. But Bill, uh, again, this is a, a wonderful note to end on. And thank you so much for all that you're doing. It's really been a blast. Thank you. Thanks for doing the podcast. It's great to have something like this out there. That's right. That's right. All right, Bill. Well, thanks again for your time. Hope to talk to you real soon. Thank you. This has been a blast. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.